Let's pray together. Father, dig out our ears and give us the ears of disciples that we might hear and that people might see Jesus more clearly because in fellowship with him and your spirit by your word we have gathered in his presence together to worship and honor him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be looking quickly uh, at a section of Luke chapter 3 and Luke chapter 4, kind of reading through them together and just a few comments on uh, a few places within each. And I am tying this into our theme for Advent of longing for the kingdom, which our music and singing have uh, led us into thinking of this last song, especially uh, longing for uh, the fullness of the kingdom to be brought in. And the subtitle, if you've looked uh, at the outline in the bulletin, we bring the spirit, but Jesus brings both the spirit and the fire. We'll talk about what that means, but one of the problems that uh, we've always got, sometimes as individuals, sometimes as the church and church history, is we want to handle the fire. But I think you'll see, even in the way that John the Baptist's ministry and uh, Jesus' uh, initial ministry are presented in Luke's gospel that that gets some things backwards. Martin Luther used uh, a term uh, that I love called left-handed power. Right-handed being because more people are right-handed, the sword hand, the more direct, direct line, straight line force, and left-handed power, well, there's no better example than the cross. It looks like foolishness. Uh, it doesn't come directly to bring the goal. It comes a different way. That's contrasted with the right-handed power, the straight-line direct power. Think the kind of Messiah that most of Jesus' fellow Jews, including his disciples, longed for. The Messiah that would come in and kick out the Romans, kick out Herod, kick out all the bad tax collectors and everybody else. Let's do it straight. Simple, direct. But think of left-handed power. Think of so many of Jesus' parables, the tares and the wheat. The disciples, what do you mean we got to wait till he grows up so we can see which is the real grain and which is the weeds? We want to clean it up now. We always push towards the right-handed, the straight line, the direct. Let's see how the text uh, helps us with this. If you've got... Uh, a Bible text, uh, follow along as I walk us quickly through it. Luke 3, verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Incredibly powerful statement. There had been 400 silent years, and now the word of God comes to John. We saw last week, full of the Holy Spirit from the womb. 
And he's told what to proclaim now in that setting. Verse 3, And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He was in the wilderness. The rebellion and sin at Jerusalem and the temple was so great that if you want to understand something of what the baptism of repentance was about, most people thought when you wanted to get close to God, you went to Jerusalem and you went to the temple. God says, I'm doing something new. Go to the wilderness. Go out by the Jordan. Go to John and repent because you've got to be ready to be a part of the new thing that is coming. A baptism of repentance, their lack of longing for awakening and new life, both of those lacks call them out literally to become identified with God's new presence and his new work. So if you're going to be part of the new presence and the new work, You've got to be baptized specifically for that work. Don't get hung up on baptism as a technical term and try to make it like Jesus' baptism. Try to make it into something that's there. It's about a particular thing. It's the repentance for the coming of the kingdom and being a part of the people that are getting ready for it to literally become identified with God's new presence and work for the forgiveness of sins. Their repentance, their change of mind about God and themselves is a cry for forgiveness in God's presence, as it is written, verse 4, in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Verse 5, every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. The valleys filled in as the mountains are chopped off, doing everything to get things out of the way so there's a level and direct path. And I'll give you a hint of where the text is going and where the gospel is taking us. Uh, As we get rid of the the sin and the harshness and the desire to carry the sword of fire, uh, we level the pathway of people to God. We show them the way of the gospel. As we get our rough places and high places and low places out of the way and reflect the gospel, our gracious actions towards neighbors, sojourners around us are part of our making God's way smooth for those who were here. Verse 7, he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized to him, you brood of vipers, that's not uh, lesson 101 on how to preach the gospel, Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Even every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John is talking here mainly to his fellow Jews. By God's grace, you've got Jewish tax gatherers that are coming out, and Roman soldiers, or perhaps they're Jewish soldiers, part of some of the other police and guards. But it's the Jewish community that is getting pruned. Who's going to leave the old ways that have become stiff and cold-hearted and become a part of the new thing that God is doing? And the crowds asked him, verse 10, what shall we then do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics to share with him who has none is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. 
Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? He said to them, Quit your jobs. No, that's what we who carry the fire tell everybody they got to do. They got to quit. I had a sister uh, in a church I served before. Uh, may she be blessed this very day. But she was so upset with some of the proclamations Disney was making that in a Sunday school class she said, Anybody that works for Disney ought to quit working for Disney. As if everyone who works for Disney is responsible for Disney's board of directors. And we had a new couple visiting the church. Guess where they worked? Disney. We bring the spirit. Jesus handles the fire. Be careful there. The longing, the expectation is the people were in. Uh, I skipped. Soldiers also asked him, and we shall, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. The tax gatherers and the soldiers were only supposed to do what their job was really about and not take advantage. Verse 15, as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie uh, the lowliest of servant tasks because people had smelly feet walking near the sewer trenches. I've been in places like this around the world ministering. You've got to be careful where you step. Uh, Jewish servants were not even allowed to do the task of taking off the sandals and cleaning the feet. It was beneath them. John says, I'm not even worthy to do that for the one who comes after me. He will baptize you, not just with water, but with the Holy Spirit and fire. If you want to understand the fire, uh, when in doubt, read the text, the next verse. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable, unquenchable fire. In other words, this is one of those left-handed things again. It's not going to happen right away, but when the time is ready, Jesus will divide the sheep from the goats. Jesus will do the ultimate judging. We can't figure it out ahead of time. Our job is to do our job and wait on him to do his job. The people want a divine anointed king to straighten everything out, the straight line power. Uh, the disciples wanted to be like James and John. Why do you think they got called sons of thunder? I remember as a young, zealous Christian on my first trip uh, to California to cruise headquarters, uh, being there in Las Vegas and watching the people that had obviously been on the sidewalk slot machines all night long, and I wanted to cast fire on Las Vegas. And I thought I was spiritual. No, I was stupid. And I hadn't read the text. Where was the heart of mercy? The heart of wondering what's happened in this person's life. Longing and expectation. Verse 18, so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Wow. The Bible's evaluation of John's message is it's good news. Because there is a way to repent. There is a way to identify with the new thing of God. There's a way to get ready. And when Jesus comes, there's even more grace to be piled on top of it. He 
preach good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all. He locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized, can only make a comment here, uh, I told you this was not Jesus' baptism. It's pretty obvious Jesus is getting baptized by it. This is a baptism that identifies with the new thing that God is doing, the new way that God is coming to be present among them. Surprise, surprise. The one who is God coming to be present above him says, I will bear the symbol of identification because I am the God-man and I am among you. There's nothing strange about what Jesus is doing. This is not an ongoing baptism. This is a unique thing that God is doing and people are being marked choosing to be a part of it. And he was praying, and the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. He is the Son, the very Son of God, the very life of God that is coming. And the people with ears to hear knew John's words of God's coming among them were good news. Luke chapter 4, not only does John's prepare the way grace, not only is John's prepare the way grace a voice for those who will hear, but God's son leads with mercy and delays his fire. Verse 1 of chapter 4, and Jesus full of the Holy Spirit returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. 40 days. Mark says the Spirit of God drove Jesus into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. He was in the wilderness 40 days, just like Moses and Elijah before him. He is sustained by God for 40 days in the wilderness. The people of God were sustained for 40 years, but Moses and Elijah, think of the transfiguration, They were sustained by God for 40 days and nights. But unlike God's unfaithful nation and son Israel, Jesus, who is sustained for 40 days, uh, succeeds where Israel failed. The devil says to him, verse 3 of chapter 4, If you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus says, I'm hungry after 40 days. Let's do it. Is that what your text says? No, it's a temptation to direct line action. He doesn't really need the devil to do it. He's got the power to do it. But he doesn't respond in a right-handed way. I'm hungry, I get food. He responds in a left-handed way and says, listen to the word of God, what God says. Man shall not live by bread alone. The devil took him up, showed him all the kingdoms of the the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me. And I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Israel was tempted in the wilderness and failed. But Jesus simply turns to the word of his father and says, he alone will I worship. 
And the devil, verse 9, took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it's written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put your Lord God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Which being otherwise interpreted means, well, this didn't work. There's got to be a more opportune time. And I can't go past it without saying the time that seemed so opportune was when the devil said, I can kill Jesus. Now I'm going to get it done. And because God works in left-handed ways, not just right-handed ways, the left-handed way of Satan's being allowed to lead Jesus to death was the undoing of everything evil that everything might ultimately become true and beautiful again, but not until the second coming of Jesus, because we don't get to be the church and run around with torches and burn everything bad down, because we do a really bad job of choosing what to burn. No direct line authority to get bread, kingdoms, or to show glorious angel protectors. Jesus' genealogy, which we can't take the time to look at, concludes with Adam. Even Adam succumbed to the devil's temptation in the garden. Jesus in the wilderness does not. So we go uh, from Adam who failed to the one who's now come, the Son of God. Verse 14, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogues on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place, what we number now Isaiah 61, where it was written, verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. How appropriate we're talking about the international justice mission and how many people, more than ever at any one time in history, in slavery today. And America's so distracted from it. And recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The one on whom the Spirit of the Lord has come, indeed he is the Son of God, uh, is here. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. In chapter C, chapter 4, we see Jesus full of the Spirit, but not utilizing the direct line, victor-like authority of the kingdom. But the Spirit, like a dove, came on him. And even the days of Noah foreshadowed the gospel as the way of the dove. The turning of the war bow the, the rainbow term in the Hebrew, uh, if you want to uh, understand this, get rid of some of your fancy commentaries for a moment if you've got some, and, uh, and look at Sally Lloyd-Jones' little children's book on the Bible. 
because she helps you understand that the bow, the Hebrew word that is there is the word for the war bow. The bow that the warrior shot the arrows with. And God puts a war bow in the sky, but which way does it face? Does it face down towards the earth or does it face to the heavens? And many think, can't be dogmatic, that God is saying, I'm turning my judgment that you deserve away from you and turning it towards myself. Because that is the way that my disciples are called to operate. The left-handed gospel of peace, the willingness of Jesus' disciples as witnesses to take up their own crosses and show grace that they've been shown to meet the hurting I have to foreshorten this, but I'm already at point three. Can you believe that? We have the Lord's table, which is every bit as important as this aspect of preaching the word as it models it for us. But thirdly, we know, we who know Jesus fear his fire because we know judgment is coming. Separation that God does is coming. It's as serious as anything could ever be. But we lead with his grace. I may only get to one of them. We'll see how the clock cooperates with me. But last week I read you from Randy Newman, Unlikely Converts. Let me at least give you one story of a testimony that Randy interviewed. Perhaps Andrew's story will be an encouragement to you, raised in a ridiculously strict, his words, Christian home. Andrew tried to obey all the rules his parents' church, Christian school, and ultra-conservative Christian college said were God's will. When I met him for lunch to hear his story, he used the word ridiculous several times and rolled his eyes as he listed some of the standards by which he had been judged. Quote, they even had rules about how men were supposed to part their hair, he told me. There was something about a neat, clean separation of hairs that paralleled the separation of Christians from the world. The problem was, while Andrew obeyed the minutia, he disobeyed one rather large commandment. He was gay. He knew it from the time he was young and several attempts to date women convinced him, no, they're not for me. So he attended strict, legalistic, ultra-fundamentalistic college classes by day and went to gay bars at night. After graduation, the gay life won and the Christian life faded. He found a partner he loved, moved in with him, and felt free of the silly straight jacket of his past. He and his partner even purchased a house together and enjoyed eight years of a faithful partnership. Sometime during those eight years, Andrew's sister, and by the way, this story and the next one, if we have time to get to it, uh, I want you to think not just about Andrew and Edward, but think about the people that actually led with the spirit and not the fire. Because that's your calling. That's my calling. Sometime during those eight years, Andrew's sister, also raised in that legalist world, legalistic world, started attending a church unlike the ultra-fundamentalist brand of her past. That church struck her as radically different. The pastor regularly distinguished the gospel of grace from the message of performance. He preached from passages in the Old Testament and made it clear that the point of the text was not be like David or be like Moses. 
There's a better David and a better Moses who did far more than just give examples to follow, this pastor taught week after week. In contrast to sermons she had heard growing up along the lines of God is looking for Abrahams in his world today, people who will take a stand and obey God. She now heard God sent his son to be all that Abraham, David, and Moses were not. This greater Abraham, greater David, greater Moses has done far more than those men ever could. We don't need to imitate those people. We need to be remade into new people. She thought she was hearing a completely different message. She was. She was right. So she invited Andrew to visit this church. She had not stopped praying for her brother, even though he had strayed far from God. And Andrew went. He too sensed the contrast between what he had heard there and what he had heard in the past. But he wrestled with being gay and being Christian. Was it possible to be both? It was not difficult for him to find several books that argued in favor of being both gay and Christian. Some of them were bestsellers. But they failed to convince him that the arguments in favor of a loving monogamous same-sex marriage interpreted the Bible accurately. The more he read their attempts, the less convincing they sounded. So he emailed the pastor of his sister's church and asked to meet with him. He told me all this in a matter-of-fact way. The pastor was a nice guy who listened to Andrew's story and was not shocked by anything he heard. He patiently answered his questions. No, the Bible cannot support the notion that gay sex is God's will. Yes, the gospel message is different than the many alternative gospels out there. Two things stood out to Andrew from his numerous conversations with that pastor. First, the discussions did not center on homosexuality. They were all about the gospel. The two men discussed passages in the book's Book of Romans, and while not ignoring the verses about homosexuality, chapter 1, 26, and 27, they spent far more time on the distinctions between grace and works, the gospel and religion, the free gift and the false counterfeits, especially chapter 3, verses 21 to 31. The second thing that impressed Andrew was that everyone, not just gays, must come to faith in Jesus and die. Die to their own sources of security to their own idols of pleasure, to their own methods of salvation. Everyone, whether gay or straight, needs to surrender their sexual authority themselves and submit to God's sexual authority, which includes a narrow plan our world finds ridiculous. To be sure, the pastor admitted Andrew's path of faith would involve greater sacrifices than some other people's. He would need to divorce his partner, lose a lot of money invested in their house, and even say goodbye to their pets. Jesus wasn't kidding when he insisted whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Andrew did, Andrew did indeed leave his former lives, both the legalistic ones and the gay ones. And he told me he had no regrets. I can't take the time to read all of the second one. There's a paragraph from it on the back of the outline. Uh, Edward, uh, if I can summarize it in just a couple of minutes, uh, told Randy that um, he'd been a college student studying philosophy, getting into marijuana and some other basic drugs. And as the nihilism of his philosophy, uh, nihilism is a word for meaningless, there's nothing really there. It's a big deal in our day. 
and as the constraints of that philosophy of there being any kind of morality that can be substantiated grew in his mind, he left marijuana and went to the heavier things until he became a meth addict, uh, cooking his own stuff. Had to quit school, was in stupors, and couldn't go to classes, had to drop out. But he stayed nearby homeless, grungy and disgusting, he said. He couldn't go home, his parents wouldn't let him do meth. Couldn't stay in school. One guy from his dorm, Len, would meet him on a bench near campus and answer questions about the meaning of life. Len shared how he'd become a Christian and found hope, contrary to most of what he heard in class. Edward couldn't believe Len was so patient. He couldn't even fathom how Len came within 10 feet of him. He hadn't bathed in weeks. He remembered a few specifics about Len that stood out. He made eye contact. Nobody else even wanted to look at him anymore. He waited patiently, Len, for an answer whenever he asked a question. Oh, pastors need to learn that. And he shared his own story of faith with a joy that didn't seem weird. They met one last time before Len graduated when he gave Edward a New Testament. Len was uh, graduated and leaving town to go to seminary, which sounded a little bit weird, but uh, Edward thanked him for the Bible and uh, hoped to see him again. And very soon after that, one of his addict buddies overdosed and died. And the grace of God entered Edward's life, and he got into a 12 Steps program. And it worked. Sobriety was a miracle, he told Randy, that budged him from hostile atheism to humble theism. Now that he was off drugs, Edward re-enrolled in school, got a job in sales that required travel on the weekends. On one sales trip, he decided, since it was nearby, to visit Len at the seminary. He wondered if he might help him find answers to his remaining questions. Remember, he's just a theist now, kind of like C.S. Lewis. The way he recounted the next part of the story still amazes me. He got on the plane with the New Testament and made a list of questions to ask Len. But by the time the plane landed, those objections were no longer objections. When he finally got with Len, some of his first words were, I guess your prayers have been answered. I'm leaving out a lot of details which might cause you to be skeptical, especially in light of my last chapter's cautions about false conversions. I asked Edward a lot of questions. So did Len. So did the church that hired him to be their missions pastor. In, rough, in a rough neighborhood, he now shares his story on a regular basis, sometimes in the midst of fear. Advent longing longing for the kingdom, longing for God to make things straight, to fix everything. First, we want it in our own life, and when we're drawn to the Lord, we want him to fix our family. We want him to fix the world. We want him to fix the church. Andrew and Edward experienced uh, the straight line power and authority and rigidity that legalism tries to use to bring salvation even in the church. The irony in our day is the rise of straight-line power from the faith-based religion of politics. People are willing to give in to any straight-line authority except God's. Because with any other one than God's, they can say, we're choosing it freely. But if God's really in charge, then I'm not going to go that way. I don't want anybody to be really and finally in charge. But how beautiful and freeing our souls made for delight is the real gospel in the ways that 
dove life like grace flowed into Andrew's life from his sister and from a pastor that knew that he was a, as big a sinner as anybody he had talked to, that he ever talked to. How beautiful the gospel-shaped, cross-shaped friendship that Len extended to Edward. This table is a left-handed table. You want power. You want everything to get fixed. And if you're going to be angry if it didn't, you don't really know the Jesus well who poured out his life knowing that things wouldn't get fixed immediately. But this table is for sinners, for rebels. It's for people like me. It's for people like you. So come and find life in Jesus. Would you say with me the Apostles' Creed? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Why has the church for centuries with communion recited things like the Apostles' Creed, the Ten Commandments? could probably come up with several reasons, but one of them is that we don't get to make up what this is about. Uh, we don't get to decide what we believe. We believe what God has revealed and what His Son and His Spirit by the Word have taught us. Uh, we submit ourselves to the Creator before we can submit ourselves to the Creator who came in flesh as our Redeemer. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. 
One of these days I need to preach a sermon on that text, but let me just remind you again that I think it's impossible to read 1 Corinthians 11 and not understand that you are to discern the body of Christ in two ways. One, that his body is the atoning sacrifice on which the wrath of God fell in your place because you deserved it. But the chapter before and after this verse makes it very clear that the body of Christ is the people of God that you are called into union with in Christ and into fellowship with. And if you think you can rightly discern the body and not think about how you treat those around you in the body of Christ, whether you even feel connected to them, whether you even feel a responsibility to them, a responsibility to the work of the body with your presence and, and your needs, then you've missed what Scripture is saying. That this thing is a whole lot bigger than you and just getting right with God in your own emotions. It's about following Jesus who is so gracious and so patient. But he's always calling us to come back to what he called us to be and how he called us to live in him.